New Spring. We're in the middle of a series called Intensive Care, and we are talking about uh, those moments of personal crises that we find ourselves in. This is about help, healing, and direction when life leaves you bruised, broken, and bleeding. And I think for all of us, this is going to be an important series. For some of us, um, it, it, it's particularly helpful for this moment in time. For others of us, it's going to hit us at the right moment later on. I, the pastor that I, I worked for before I came to serve at this church used to have a saying. He said, we're either in the middle of a personal crisis, we're coming out of one, or we're getting ready to go into one. So I think uh, we all experience these sorts of things in our life, and it's important to kind of stow away these truths so we can be prepared to handle those things uh, when they occur. And to be honest with you, um, there are different kinds of crises. I mean, some crises that come up in our life um, are things that we have no control over. And to some extent, I think that those things are a little easier to deal with sometimes. You know, when the perfect storm happens and there are things that happen in our life that causes personal crisis and there's nothing that we could have done to avoid it, there's nothing that, that we did to, to influence it or to cause it to happen, it's difficult and it's rough to deal with, and we've been talking about some of those sorts of crises in the past few weeks, but to some extent, there's really not a whole lot we can do to avoid that. But I think the most painful crises in life are those that we can tell our decisions put us in those moments. When, when we can get to a time of crisis where we can look at the road that led us there and see that there were choices that we personally made that took us where we, where we went. And I think it's important that we recognize as a culture that... Um, there are reasons that those things occur. I mean, our culture has given us kind of a skewed view of crisis. I don't know if you're aware of this, but you can watch um, the news or you can watch, uh, you can look at those magazines that they have as you get ready to check out the supermarket. I wouldn't advise you to look too closely, but the, regardless, you can look at those sorts of things and you're gonna see plenty of information about people going through personal crises, right? And so-and-so is cheating on so-and-so and, and, and this person's had to have massive, uh, you know, uh, uh, cosmetic surgery because they've really let themselves go since their last movie or whatever, you're going to see that these different types of, of personal crises. And I don't know, any, anybody here used to watch uh, Tiger Woods play golf? Okay, five or six of you, good. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not much of a person to watch sports on television, but I didn't mind watching Tiger Woods play golf from time to time. The guy just made it look so easy, and I've been on the golf course, and I recognize that it's not that easy. And, the thing I liked about Tiger was that he seemed, from, from everything I could, I could tell, it seemed like he had a pretty, pretty strong personal life as well. It looked like pretty much he was just a solid guy all the way through. And then as you remember, it wasn't too long ago that, that a kind of really public breakdown surfaced and turned out that Tiger had been having multiple affairs and that his marriage was headed toward dissolution. And I don't know about you, but I, I look at, at Tiger and I think that this is a guy who's smart enough that it wasn't like he woke up at one, one point and just said, you know, I think I'm going to ruin a good segment of my career and, and, and cost myself um, the stability of the family that I have. And, and, and I just want to mess up this whole family unit that I have and have difficulty trying to figure out custody with, with a child and all those sorts of things. I don't think it was intentional for him. I don't think he woke up one morning and decided that's what I want. I mean, if you look at those sources of news, you're also going to see uh, celebrities who, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it seems like the list is long of people who, were, who seemed like they had it together, they were handling their celebrity pretty well, and then one day you turn on the news and it turns out this person on tape or on video started saying obscene things or doing obscene things or, or making uh, racially um, uh, motivated remarks or something like that that will forever become part of their 
public persona. I mean, their Wikipedia page will always have a heading that says personal failure. It'll follow them everywhere they go. I don't think those people intended to do that. I don't think they woke up one morning and said, I feel like ruining my career today. And also, I mean, you, you guys know this, I don't have to tell you, but you're going to see really often somebody who looks like everything is going on really well with their life, and then you're going to find out there's a major substance abuse problem, and they've checked themselves into rehab. So I think there's a really important question for us to ask, because if we're not careful, we'll get to the point where we think that these sorts of crises come up as quickly as the media portrays, you know? They pop up uh, one morning, and we weren't even expecting it to happen, and all of a sudden, bam, we hear about this personal crisis. And if we're not careful, we'll begin to think, hey, these things happen just that quick. But if we were to be honest with ourselves, we would recognize that these sorts of destinations are, are places that happen because this person has made a series of personal choices that took them there. And probably at the very beginning of it, it didn't seem like a very big decision. See, our culture is really good about giving us the details of breakdowns. We're really good at understanding the details of meltdowns. If you want to find out all the different women that Tiger Woods was involved with, it's not difficult to find that out. You can Google it and you'll find out all the details more than you ever wanted to know, right? If, if you want to learn about the details of somebody's personal failure, they're all out there for you to find. You can figure it out. But what you won't find is any credible information on why those sorts of meltdowns happen. I mean, I remember the day after the whole Tiger Woods story broke. The news channels were replete with information about what happened, but nobody was offering any good advice as to why those things happen. And folks, if we don't know why it happens, then we don't have much hope of keeping it from happening in our lives. So this morning we're going to talk about why do we get down these dead-end roads. And I think it's important for us to just, first of all, recognize there are dead-end roads in life, correct? Correct. I mean, if there were no dead-end roads in life, there'd be no reason to have Alcoholics Anonymous. There'd be no reason to have Sexaholics Anonymous or recovery groups for compulsive spending or gambling. And for me, somebody who works with married couples an awful lot, this is, an, this is a big one. If there were no dead-end roads in life, there'd be no need for divorce courts, right? But there are dead-end roads in life. And I think it's important for us to ask ourselves, why do people go down them? I mean, are people just stupid? That's a credible question. Do, do, we go, do we go down dead-end roads just because we just don't know any better? Oh, look, there's a dead-end road. Might as well go down it, right? Or I think this is the one that I hear more than that. This is the one I hear all the time. Well, my circumstances forced me to go down a dead-end road, right? My, circumstance has, they ha my circumstances have so much leverage over me, it made me go down a path I didn't want to go down. I love this. I'll be sitting in an office with a married couple, um, and, and the husband will tell me, my wife makes me so crazy. She makes me so mad. She makes me just lose my temper. And then when I go to work, she makes me behave like an idiot. <laughs> that's, giving, that's, that's giving your wife an awful lot of power. I mean, she must be a very powerful lady if she can make you do all those things, right? See, our circumstances don't make us make bad decisions. We still have a choice. And I think that is the moment of clarity. At first, it may seem kind of like a, a hard truth to embrace, but can I tell you if stupidity is why we go down dead-end roads or if our circumstances is why we go down dead-end roads, we don't have any hope of figuring out why it happens and keeping it from happening again. But if going down dead-end roads is the, is the result of our choice, then there's something we can do about it. So if you'll grant me just a few moments, I want to talk to you about personal choice in your life and dead-end roads. 
the first thing you need to know, if we're going to talk about why we make choices, you, you need to recognize that the territory in your life where you make personal decisions is the biggest spiritual battleground you'll ever experience in your life. Because Satan understands that if he's going to have any influence on your life at all, he must influence you at the point of decision. He must find you at a point where you're at a fork in the road, and he must convince you to take a road that leads you nowhere. There are two, two forces at work in every decision that you have to make. God has an ulterior motive about the decision that you make, and Satan has an ulterior motive. What is God's ulterior motive? Well, we talked about it last week. Jeremiah 29, 11 says this. For I know the plans I have for you. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. So what is God's, what is God's ulterior motive when I begin to make a decision? Well, God's ulterior motive is always about a future, and it's always about a relationship. You hear us talk all the time about the fact that we're not about religion at New Spring Church, right? You hear us say that religion is... Basically a term that means God, a man trying to find some way to get to God. We're about a relationship here. We're all about um, man having a relationship with God as a result of God coming to us and giving us an opportunity to have that relationship. So in every decision, what God wants for you to do is to take the choice, the wise choice that is going to lead you in a path that is right for the relationship. But Satan also has an ulterior motive. His goal is to terminate futures. If God's goal is to give you a future, Satan's goal is to terminate your future. John 8, 44 and 45 says this. He was a killer. Now, your translation may say he was a murderer. But he was a killer from the very start. He couldn't stand the truth because there wasn't a shred of truth in him. Well, what was Satan a killer of? If your translation says murderer, what was he a murderer of? It's not as though we have in the scripture some account of Satan plotting out a murder of somebody and killing somebody. No, see, the, the kind of death that we think about on earth is, 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 the, is not the most important kind of death. The kind of death that we're talking about in the scriptures here is separation from God. What Satan is a killer of is he is a killer of relationships. He gets in there and tries to put distance between you and God. That is his purpose. That is his goal. He wants to take you down a path that will lead you away from God. Why? Because he doesn't care about you. Did you know that? Satan could care less about you. All Satan cares about is trying to get at God, and he knows how much God loves you, and so his way of getting at God is to find a way to put distance between you and him. So how does this happen? You know, what's, what's interesting is when, when you, you, will, you will probably at some point in time in your life, you will have the experience of having somebody that you love very deeply get started down a dead-end road, and you'll see where it's going, you know where this path is leading, but they can't see it. You try to tell them, that person is all wrong for you. They are pulling you in a bad direction. If you go in this relationship, if you buy into this relationship, you are going to end up in a bad place. But they can't see that. And they keep going. And they begin to get on the yeah, but train, right? <laughs> you say, hey, listen, listen. When you go to the bars and, and you get drunk and you come home, you're like a whole different person. Your friends don't like being around you. We don't like being around you. It's not okay. And this is getting to be more and more common, and it's getting worse, and this is really being a big problem, and it's, it's taking you in a direction you don't want to be. And they'll say, yeah, but I'm under a lot of pressure right now. I'm under a lot of stress right now. You don't know what it is that I'm dealing with. This is the way that I cope. Yeah, but 
Yeah, but you, you, you'll, you'll, you'll tell, uh, uh, you'll tell a, a teenager, you know, the crowd that you're hanging with is, is taking you in a really bad direction. Yeah, but you don't understand. I'm trying to be an influence on them. I'm, I'm trying to help them out. But then there is that, that moment of personal crisis. You know what the message of yeah, but is? It's a message of control. I still have control. Yeah, I hear what you're saying, but I'm in control. Yeah, I know this could end up bad, but I'm in control. You see, the way this all works is, you end up on a bad road, but you think you're going to be able to somehow get back on the right road. You know, you guys know what I'm talking about? You know, you're, you're driving, you know, with your wife in the car right next to you, and you end up making a detour you hadn't intended to make. And you sort of know that you're headed kind of not in the direction of the destination you had intended on going, and your wife has been kind enough to let you know a couple times. <laughs> but in your heart of hearts, you have this feeling that all roads sort of lead to some other destination where I can get back on track. You know, she, she says, I really think we should go back, you know. Or she says, the really dreaded one, maybe we should stop and ask for directions, right? <laughs> you're like, no, I know where I'm going, right? Ladies, I'm not even supposed to be telling you this. It's part of the universal man code, right, is understanding how these things occur. But I think the important thing to recognize is it's that misplaced confidence that I will somehow get where it is that I intend to go, even though I know this is not taking me in a good direction. But then that crisis comes, that moment where it all falls apart. And that person who felt like they were in control now knows they're not in control of anything. And when that happens, you know what they say? I don't know how this happened. How could I have been such an idiot? How could I be so dumb? Or I love this one. This is one I hear a lot. I wish I knew what made me do that. We're back to stupidity and circumstances. The whole reason I'm in this spot is I was stupid, or the whole reason I'm in this spot is because of my circumstances. But there's a better and more clear reason, and that is that spiritual battleground we were just talking about. See, Satan's goal, and if, if you're going to write something down, I don't have my usual list that I give you of things, but if you, if you want to write something down, this is probably one of the most important things from this morning, and this is this. Satan's goal for my life is to get me to live on dead-end roads, so he labels them with false advertising. I don't know everything. Did you know that? Just going to share that with you. you. You don't know everything either, right? And Satan knows that. So what Satan does is he uses our lack of knowledge, he uses the things that we don't know to get us to make decisions we wouldn't make if we knew everything. Have you ever learned that? You make a decision and you learn something after you make the decision and you go, if I had only known that, I would have never gone down that road. If I had known what that APR was going to be, right, I would not have signed up for that card, right? If I had known what the end product of this relationship was going to be, I wouldn't have said yes. So how does Satan get us to make short-sighted decisions? How does he use our lack of knowledge against us? Well, there's a couple things, but mostly he uses what I like to call plausible misinformation. Plausible misinformation is where when you're in a sales pitch, somebody's trying to sell you something and you say, where's the catch, you know? It sounds good, and it sounds possibly like it could be right, but it has the potential to be wrong. And that's what Satan uses in our life. He gives us things that sound good, but they have the potential to be wrong, and, and they are wrong in our lives. And I want to give you the two ways that he gives us plausible information. And we're going to go back to Genesis 3.1. And by the way, in Genesis 3.1, this is the biggest dead-end road sales pitch 
ever. I mean, if you want to see how Satan works, it is right here in this passage. And I want to start in verse 1 and show you something that I had not seen until this week. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? If you remember this story, God had put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He'd given them access to everything there, except there was a boundary around one thing. One tree in the garden. He said, don't eat the fruit of this tree. Everything else you have access to. But now, don't you find it a little interesting that Satan goes up to her and says, now, did God say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now, what's his angle? Why is he asking that question? I mean, obviously it's wrong, but why is he asking that question? One of the biggest tools of plausible misinformation Satan gives us is he gives us hypotheticals. It's as though Satan is coming to Eve and planting a seed of doubt in her mind. It's as though he's coming to her and saying, you know, now God has already told you. He's already said you can't eat from one tree. What if, um, what if God were to just come over tomorrow and say you can't eat from any of them? What if God isn't as good as you think he is? What if God isn't planning to take care of you? What if this is just a short-term thing? Young person, you're going to be in a dating relationship with someone, and that person is going to pressure you to do something you know you shouldn't do. Perhaps that person puts pressure on you to have sex with you, and you know I shouldn't do this. This is not the right thing. This is not what God wants. And God has put a barrier around that. But then Satan will come along and he'll begin to put little seeds of doubt in your mind and say, what if, um, what if God's not as good as you think he is? What if God never brings the right guy or the right gal in your life? What if this is your only shot at a real relationship? What if this is all God has for you? See what I'm saying? Satan begins to take those hypotheticals and twist the truth in our life, and make us think that God doesn't have a future for us. And he puts us on that platform of vulnerability so he can stage us for his next big shot. I want to show you the other thing he uses to give us plausible misinformation. He puts us on a a platform of vulnerability, and then he uses one other tool. Look at this, Genesis 3, 2. Of course we may eat from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Now, God didn't say they couldn't touch it, but I think when Adam told Eve what God said, he buffered it a little bit, right? Verse 4, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. See, he'll get you off balance with a hypothetical. He'll get you thinking about what, what if God's not good. And then right at that moment when you're a little off balance, he'll hit you with a fraudulent promise. Now, what if God's not good? Hey, but I could offer you this. What if God's not good? But think about what you could experience if you did this. Sure, there's a boundary around it, but how do you even know that the person who put that boundary there has your best interest at heart? Why don't you do something you know you should do? Here's the thing about being defrauded. I don't know if you've ever had somebody try to defraud you. But the practice of defrauding goes something like this. It is promising something to somebody that you cannot deliver in order to get them to give you something that you are not entitled to. That is what Satan does. He promises us something he does not have access to and he cannot deliver in order to get us to surrender to him something that he is not entitled to. Because God placed in each one of us the ability to make personal choices 
And that is what Satan leverages against God. He finds us at the moment of decision, at that crossroad, when we have, the deci- when we have a decision to make, and he finds us and he loads us up with plausible information, a little bit of hypothetical stuff, a little bit of fraud, and before you know it, he's got us going down a road we would have never chosen for ourselves. See, Satan's not near as obvious as some of us think he is. Some of us grew up with the cartoons and we're used to thinking of Satan as a guy in red PJs with a pitchfork and typically likes to sit on people's shoulder and, and, and debate angels on the other shoulder, right? We think that's what Satan looks like. And we know that Satan is so evil, right, that it seems logical that if Satan, this incredibly evil being, were trying to get me to make a decision, it would be so obvious that I would be clear on what it is he's trying to get me to do, and I would be clear to say no to it. And as though we think Satan's going to march in the door, he, Satan did not march into Eve's front door and say, hey, Eve, here's the deal. See, I'm kind of ticked off about this whole business of God thumping me out of heaven. That was not the way I saw that whole thing playing out. And um, I'm really kind of miffed about this whole business of, 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 of him having a relationship with you guys. And so mostly what I need you to do, if you don't mind, I really need you to face off to God um, and do something that's going to really mess your future up and the future of all mankind. And, and, and really, I just need you to basically make the biggest mistake in, the, in, in history. Would you mind doing that for me? Some of us think that if Satan were to come into our life, he would walk into a married man's home and say, hey... I want you to do something stupid, screw up, and, and ruin your whole family. We kind of think Satan would be that obvious, but you know what Satan does? He, he's, he's a lot more subtle than that with his misinformation. Let me tell you how this plays out. A precious husband and wife who have everything, by the way, that they need to have a good marriage. God has given them all the tools that they need to have a good marriage. They will have a fight one morning. And it won't be a tremendously bad fight, but it will have been a symbol of all the fights that sort of led up to this fight. And as he gets in his car, Satan begins to vend plausible information into his life. You know what? She doesn't respect you. She's critical of you. She looks down at you. She doesn't think you're a worthwhile human being. She doesn't think you're talented, and she doesn't think you're attractive. And he leaves it at that. And he sort of hears that tape play over and over again. And guess what happens when he gets to work? At work, there is a woman who respects him. There is a woman who's not critical of him. There is a woman who thinks he's talented and attractive. And Satan uses the hypothetical information that says, what if your wife never looks at you the way you want her to look at you? What if your marriage never looks the way you want it to look? And right when he hits you off balance with that hypothetical, he gives you the fraudulent promise of saying, this woman at work is exactly what you're looking for. And he doesn't know that her home life looks just as difficult as his home life looks right now. She goes to work. And as she's going to work, Satan is vending her plausible information. He doesn't listen to you. He doesn't hear a thing you say. When you try to connect with him and share the deepest thoughts of your heart, when you try to tell him the stories of what's going on in your life and you try to have an have a, have a intimate connection with him, he doesn't get that. He doesn't get where you're coming from. You're just two separate people living on separate orbs. You may live at the same address, but you're not in the same home. You're two completely different entities. And then she gets to work. And at the cubicle next to hers, there is a guy who listens. And he seems like he's connected to her, and they seem like they have a bond of some sort. 
And Satan hits her with the hypothetical. What if your husband never listens to you? What if you spend the rest of your life feeling like you're an independent entity in a home where you are trying to serve somebody but they don't care about you back? What if that's what the rest of your life looks like? And then he hits her with the fraudulent promise that this guy, he really gets you. And she doesn't know that at his house there's a woman who just wishes he could, she could get his ear for a moment. See, we don't make bad decisions because we're stupid. Did you know God made you a very smart human being? You're very smart. God, we don't make decisions because we're stupid, and we don't make bad decisions because of our circumstances. I want to give you a verse, and I got it too late to give it to the tech team, but if you don't have this verse circled in your Bible, you may want to write this reference down or circle it. It's Proverbs 14, 12, and it says this. There is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. There is a path that seems right. Do you know why we make bad decisions? It's real simple. Because at the moment of decision, it feels like the right thing to do. We make bad decisions because it feels like the right thing to do. If it didn't feel like the right thing to do, we wouldn't do it. Now, we may know that there's problems going down this path, but the feelings behind it still drive us down that path. So can I tell you that that poses kind of a, a big dilemma? If Satan is so talented at giving us plausible misinformation, if he is so talented at making dead-end roads feel right to us, then what is the answer? And the answer is where, where we go to the verse that this whole weekend is, is going to be about. Uh, you heard my dad say recently that the, the, these next weeks were going to be verses that were, were very helpful to him in a time of, of uh, personal difficulty. And, and the verse, we're, we haven't even read it yet, but we're headed there. The solution that God has put in place for the fact that sometimes the wrong road feels right is barricades. Now, what's interesting about barricades is a lot of us, our very first um, exposure to God was that somebody read us a litany of God's barricades, right? And so this was our first picture of God. Somebody told us all the things that the Bible tells us we're not to do and all the things that the Bible tells us we are to do. And we begin to feel like God is sort of a vindictive control freak who's just trying to box me in and tell me all the things that are gonna get me in trouble. We begin to think maybe God is just, maybe God's standards are just so high that I don't even measure up and maybe he's just trying to make me feel really bad about me. Can I tell you, God's purpose in your life is that he wants you to actually get somewhere. Remember we talked about his purpose is that you'll have a future and that there'll be a relationship. And so God places barricades in our life for a reason. When God puts a roadblock in our life, it's there for a reason. A lot of times we'll get to the point where we'll, we'll say, why is God blocking me? You may be here this morning, and, and I guess this is heavy on my heart because I deal with married couples. You may be sitting here this morning and you may be thinking to yourself, I'm so unhappy right now in my marriage. And I know what I could do to be happy, but I feel like God is blocking me because I know that God has said that this is not the right thing that I need to do. I don't need to be a developing an attachment with this person. I don't need to be getting close to this person and end up having a relationship that's not the right thing. I know that would make me happy, and yet at the same time, I know that God has said I'm not supposed to do this. Why is God blocking me? Doesn't God want me to be happy? Why does God come into my life and say you shouldn't go there when I know full well it would make me happy? Well, I want to tell you 
about God's barricades, why God puts them there, and then also, and as I'm doing that, I want to give you two things that make God's barricades successful in your life. So if you, I've, got, I've got two quick things. It's kind of a 50-50 deal. You've got to have both if this is going to work. If God's barricades are going to work in your life, you're going to have to have both of these things. The first is that God's barricades require trust. They require trust. Proverbs 14, 16 says this. The wise are cautious and avoid danger. So they understand what a block looks like, they understand what a barricade looks like, and they respect it, right? But fools plunge ahead with reckless confidence. It's as though God is saying that fools literally just drive straight through the barricades. They don't even see them. They just blow through them, right? Well, there's an interesting thing we need to pay attention to as we're looking at this. The Bible gives us a legend for what wisdom and foolishness looks like. If you read in Psalms and Proverbs, you're going to see a lot about the wise person. You're going to see a lot about the foolish person. The wise man has said this. The foolish man says this. It's important you need to understand what, what wisdom and foolishness is about in the Scriptures, and we get a key for understanding wisdom and foolishness. In Psalms 53, 1, the Bible says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So as far as you can go into foolishness, as far as you can get into that path of life, that there is a message that says there is no God, right? And then in Proverbs 9.10, it says this, fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment. So as far as you can get into wisdom is this understanding that knowing God is the most important thing and recognizing that His judgment overrules everything, right? So this is wisdom and foolishness. Wisdom is understanding about God, having a, having a healthy respect of God. Foolishness is saying there is no God. And this is where the rubber meets the road with trust. Remember we just said that a foolish person, a person that has said in his heart there is no God, blows through a barricade. But a person who is wise, a person who respects God, is, is cautious. Why? Because barricades and trust go together. You hear trust mentioned a lot at New Spring. We talk about trusting God or calling on God or trusting in his promises. Why? It's a very simple axiom in life. You will follow whomever you trust. You ever watch little kids, perhaps? And I, I remember uh, when I was working for a college, I was doing some, some student uh, work over uh, at the academy across the way. And it was fire drill day, right? And it was an unannounced fire drill. And all these little kiddos, you know, I guess they were probably between the ages of like six and ten. All these little kiddos are around. And, and the minute they started flashing those lights and making the big noise, it sort of startled the kids. Watch what happens. They all flock to whoever it is in that room that they trust. And it'll be the same in your life. When you go through a shakeup in your life and you find yourself at a destination you don't want to be at, you will always follow whoever you trust. So in foolishness, when we go all the way over here and say there is no God, who am I going to trust? Well, I'm going to trust me. If there's no God, then I ought to just go with my gut, right? But if I'm over here in the wisdom side and I have fear of God and I recognize that his judgment is better than mine, then the person I'm going to follow is him because I have a high trust level with him. Because, see, here's the deal, and it's important for us to recognize this. Satan doesn't need to get you to follow his desires in order to get you to go down a dead end road. It's quite sufficient for him to get you to follow your own desires. If he can get you to trust yourself, that's plenty for him. Psalms 3, 5 through se- or Proverbs 3, 5 through 7 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't depend on whose understanding? Your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. See, that's the thing about following God is that we have to recognize whether or not we trust that God knows what's down the road that we're looking at. 
Does the person who put this barricade here know something about this road that I don't know? It's a big question to ask. Here's the deal. When, when, before Wendy and I moved away from Wichita, and this has been some years back, the Kellogg construction was pretty new, and, and I remember that there was a ramp off of Kellogg that they had built, but the ramp didn't go anywhere. There was no road at the end of that ramp, and there was a, there was a blockade or a danger sign or something, a barricade there. I never felt the temptation to rush through that barricade with reckless confidence, right? Because... There was nothing at the end of that barricade. See, I can see that. I can see the danger, right? But now, shortly before we moved from Oklahoma to here, um, there was a road in Oklahoma that um, I would take to, to get me from where I was going to, to work, and I was kind of late because I'm always late. I'm ADD. And, um, and I recognized, having been driving around that area, it's a small, sort of small community in that suburb of Oklahoma City that we were in, I recognized that the construction crew had, that had been working on this road was no longer there. I also recognized that the barricade that they had put up was kind of, you know, um, uh, dinky. There wasn't much to it, right? And so I kind of wondered what it would be like if a person sort of went up and just sort of gently nudged the barricade over because my Honda wasn't very big. And I sort of thought if the barricade had scooted over just a couple feet, my Honda would just slip through there and nobody would notice anyway because it wasn't like anybody was paying attention. Now, I can't vouch for exactly how the barricade got moved. Um, my memory is a little sketchy at that, but uh, it did. And, and I took my little car down the road a little ways, and, and only to discover that uh, even though the construction crew was not there, their tire puncturing materials were still there. And um, so anyway, I backed up out of that area where that barricade was, and only to find out that the barricade had been put back. Some conscientious person had, had moved the barricade back where it belonged. And I think because they were very concerned that perhaps the wind had blown it a little bit, they put a few hundred pounds of sandbags over the barricade <laughs> to hold it in place. I should tell you at this point in time, the reason I was trying to get to the church was because there was a funeral that morning, and so I'm in my suit, you know, I'm, I'm dressed up really nice. So here I am in my suit, crouched down, pulling this barricade, trying to move it over. It's got about 350 pounds of sand on it, and, and then one of Edmund's finest pulls up. I should also tell you that the police sergeant and Edmund went to our church. <laughs> I really thought, I kind of explained the story and I thought I was gonna get a ticket, but the policeman was so doubled over with laughter. He... <laughs> but see, the person who put the barricade up on that road, they knew something about that road that I didn't know. See, it's not hard for me to pay attention to a barricade when I can see the danger. That barricade on Kellogg, I totally respected it, because I could see that there was danger there. But see, in that small little barricade in Edmond, I, I didn't know that there was danger down that road. See, for so many of us, as long as God puts up a barricade in an area where we can see the danger, that's fine. We'll, we'll respect that all day long. But when God puts up a barricade and we don't see the danger and it's a road we want to go down, we'll find a way to nudge the barricade over a little bit and get down that road. Barricades require trust. We have to ask ourselves when we get to a barricade, do I trust my view of this road or do I trust God's view of this road? See, there are young people in this room this morning. If you follow God's plan for your life, when you follow God's plan, the friends that you have in your high school, the friends that you have in your college, they are going to laugh at you and think that you are the funniest person they've ever met in their entire life. They're going to think that you're a throwback, you're an antique. But the thing about it is, they don't respect the barricades because they don't believe the person who put them there understands what's down that road. 
The whole point of whether or not we believe a barricade is there for a reason is whether we believe the person who put it there knows. And I've got to move on quickly. The second thing, I said the first thing is it requires trust. The second thing is it requires intention. A barricade requires intention. It's not enough to just respect the boundaries. If we respect the boundaries, that's good. But it's not just enough to respect the boundaries. Because as all of us know, we won't make it through a day of our life without some dead-end road showing up at our doorstep. We've got to make a decision what to do with it. We're going to have to be intentional about barriers. We're going to have to be intentional about roadblocks. We're going to have to put them there. We're going to have to ask God to put them there intentionally. And here's where our verse is. This is the verse that my dad chose. Psalm 119, verse 29. It says, barricade the road that goes nowhere. Grace me with your clear, clear revelation. Now notice the psalmist is not saying, help me respect your boundaries. What is he saying? He's saying, I want you to put boundaries in my life. All my life as a Christian, growing up in church, listening to my dad speak, and caring about the things of God, I've never in my life until this week ever asked God, I mean literally go to God and ask God, God, I need the blessing of your blocking in my life. I need you to block me from things that don't have a future. See, God has told us his truth. But there is a certain way in which God waits for us to come to him and say, not only do I respect what you have to say, I want such success in my life. I want our relationship to go so well. And I want a future to the extent that I am asking you to come in my life and blockade those roads that will lead me to a place that has no future. And it gives it a whole new meaning, does it not? All the things that we've heard God tell us, all of a sudden now it becomes so clear. God is not vindictive. God is not controlling. Here's the deal. When God puts a boundary in our life, and this is so important to remember, God is not into superfluous boundaries. God does not put a boundary in our life just for fun. When God puts a boundary in our life, it's because he knows something that we don't know. I'm going to skip down really quickly to verse 35 in this passage because I want to give you the answer to hypotheticals and fraudulent promises. Verse 35 says, guide me down the road of your commandments. I love traveling this freeway. I mean, literally, and you'll see this over and over again, that the psalmist talks about how he loves God's law, how he loves God's commandments. as though he's saying, God, I love your rules. I grew up in a wonderful home with parents that I loved and respected. I don't ever recall saying, Mom and Dad, I love your rules. That curfew thing is awesome, you know? Never quite went down that way. But there is a maturity that is evident when we, sell, when we tell God, no, I, I respect your boundaries and I'm asking you to put them in my life because I love the fact that when you give me a boundary, it represents the fact that you are trying to give me a future. Look at it, it says in verse 36, give me a bent for your words of wisdom and not for piling up loot. That's the answer to hypotheticals. Remember, what is Satan trying to do with a hypothetical? He's trying to put us off balance, make us insecure, and think that God has not made provision for our future. And what, what the Bible is saying here is, the, the psalmist is saying, I want to pile up your wisdom in my life, and I don't want to be greedy and pile up things for a future because I know you've got my future under control. And then look, this is for those fraudulent promises. Verse 37, it says, divert my eyes from toys and trinkets. Invigorate me on the pilgrim way. It's as though he's saying, when Satan puts that bling out in front of me and says, you know you want this, he's saying, God, I'm asking you to divert my attention from that. Help me understand that that is not what it is that it seems to be. And can I tell you, as somebody who, who works with 
individuals in moments of personal crisis. And please hear me. If you only hear me say one thing this morning, please hear me say this. If you wait until the moment of decision to decide whether or not a boundary is there, it'll be too late. If you wait until that person is flirting with you at work and offering you a relationship you shouldn't pursue, it'll be too late to decide whether or not there's a barricade there. Sir, if you wait until something comes up on your computer screen that's tempting you to click on something you shouldn't click on, if you have waited until then to decide if there is a barricade or a boundary over that, it'll be far too late. That is the whole point of saying, God, I need your barricades in my life. I need your boundaries in my life. And I need them there ahead of the time that I have to make a decision. I want to share one last thing with you. And, and, and this is something that really revolutionized my view of this topic this week as I studied. And again, it was something that had never really made sense to me until this week. And I was praying to God and I was saying, God, here's the deal. Here's what I don't get. I don't get the fact that the psalmist... It's not as though he's being very analytical. You know, I, can, I could see him writing out a big deal about what we just talked about. I need boundaries in my life. I need to make decisions ahead of time. So God, I appreciate you putting boundaries in my life. No, he says, I love them. I love your boundaries in my life. It's, it's as though he's saying, they mean something special to me. And I said, God, I'm just not to the place yet in my life where your boundaries or your barricades are special to me. They don't, I, they're not something that I love. Why, why is it that the psalmist says, I love them? And then it dawned on me. When, when Wendy and I moved to Wichita about, oh, a year and a half ago, we, uh, our, we had a 12-month-old, and uh, we had not lived in a house with stairs um, prior to that, and the house that we moved into here had a basement, so we needed to um, do something to keep uh, our little girl from falling down the stairs. I mean, it just makes sense, right? Anybody would do that. We went, we went to, I think it was Babies R Us or something like that, and we got a, a, a baby gate, and... Um, we got it, or I didn't put it up, my father-in-law put it up. I'm not blessed with the spiritual gift of home improvement, and he is, so. We, we put that up, and what was interesting is for the next few months, the basement was like this magical, mystical place that our little 12-month-old would look over the edge. Not that she was never down there, but like when the gate was up and she wasn't down there, she would sort of look down there as though something really wonderful was going on down there, and it was one of those things, that particular barricade in her life was not one that I, that I think her 12-month-old her self appreciated just a whole bunch. But the reason that that barricade was there was because I understand something about stairs that a 12-month-old doesn't understand. See, I understand that a body in motion tends to remain in motion until so on and so forth. I recognize that every action has an equal and opposite reaction, and I recognize that if she tried to be Superman and tried to fly down the stairs, there was going to be pain and suffering at the end of that trip. And it dawned on me that barricade was really a sign of the love that my wife and I have for our little girl. You see, it would be unloving of us not to put that there. It would be irresponsible of us not to put that there. It would be uncaring. It would basically prove, if we had not put that there, it would basically prove that it didn't matter to us whether she got hurt or not. Can I tell you that when God puts a barricade in your life, he's doing it because he is a responsible parent. He's doing it because he cares about you, and he does care whether or not you get hurt. And he puts that boundary there because he knows something about that road that you don't know. 
the Bible tells us that God loves us enough to put barricades in our path when there is danger that we cannot see. And I hope that's helpful for you as you begin to think about the idea of God barricading the road that goes nowhere. Would you bow your head and pray with me for just a moment? Father, we thank you so much for the blessing of your blocking in our lives. And we pray that you would show us those barricades, those barriers, Father, that we are not to just go through, Father, but that we are to respect and we are to trust. Father, thank you for that. Would you keep your heads bowed and eyes closed for just another minute? You might have heard me say a minute ago that God is about a relationship and God is about a future. You might say, Jonathan, even though you didn't talk about it a lot tonight, I, I recognize that that's a future that I want. I want to have that relationship with God. How would I go about that? Well, here's the deal. God has done all the doing that there is. Jesus has paid for every wrong thing you've ever done. The only thing that remains is for you to choose to accept his free gift. So I'm going to say the words to a prayer, and my words are very unimportant. What's important is that you mean these things from your heart. So I'm going to say this in phrases, and you can say this silently in your head to God. And if you mean this, you will have a relationship with him. Here's that prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died for me. I know I do wrong things, and I know I can't save myself. Today, I accept your free gift of heaven and forgiveness. I believe in you, Jesus.